So um, God gave me this verse the other day. I'm kind of in my personal time. I'm going through Isaiah, and I just felt like this would be a good verse to start. And just as an encouragement to, to me, but also you know, to our fellowship, and it's in Isaiah 8, 11 through 13. And just I thought it was very pertinent for kind of where we see ourselves in the current state of the world right now. But it says, For the Lord spoke thus to me, and the me in that is technically Isaiah, but I think he's speaking to all of us these things. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls a conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him shall you honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. I thought that was such a powerful word for the times that we're in today, because there's a lot of conspiracies, a lot of things to fear. God tells us don't fear what the world fears, but to fear him. And that leads us right into Proverbs, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So last week in Proverbs 14 and 15, um, it was a short week for me, and that, that, um, that study just went by so fast. But we talked about the way, our walk, or path. And that's the theme that we've seen throughout Proverbs, just what way are we walking? How are we walking? What choices are we making? We talked about the value of oxen, that, that enigmatic proverb that talked about essentially investing in God's kingdom and willing to, be get, to get dirty for the ministry. We talked about grief and the fellowship of the Lord in our suffering. And again, that, that theme that we're going to continually kind of come back to, the fear of the Lord, but we saw that the fear of the Lord gives us hope. It serves as a refuge for us. It gives us freedom and contentment, honor and wisdom. And this week, again, we're going to be moving into chapters 16 and 17, And like all of the Proverbs, there's a lot of different themes kind of playing out in these two chapters, many of which are familiar now, but one of which is is something that we haven't talked a lot about is, is plans, our plans, our life, reality versus dreams. We're going to talk about God's sovereignty. It talks about contentment versus hypocrisy and discontentment. And there's this passage, and this is something we haven't really touched on yet. It's about the king, the king this, the king that. And that kind of comes out in some of the later chapters as well. But in 16, uh, particularly, um, there's some passages that describe the king, and we're going to talk about that. But I'll just read these first few verses. So it's verses 1 through 3, and then I'm going to tag on verse 9 and read them all together. But the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So in that passage, we see plans, commitment, and establishment. And these plans speak to our thoughts, our desires, our dreams, if you would, what job we'd like, 
what place we'd like to visit, how we see and plan for our future. Um, it also speaks to this great gift that God gives us of our free will, our ability to have those dreams, our abilities to make plans, our abilities to, that God gives us gifts and to act on those gifts. So the, that's, that's how I think this is speaking to. Yet what we know is our answers to these questions are not always godly. Like what job will we want? What do we want to do? What do we want to go? If they're not dictated to us by God's spirit and confirmed in his word, they're not always godly desires that we have. Right? What I see in this is the issue of questions versus answers. Questions versus answers. See, we see that verse, the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. The plans of the heart. How many times do we, you know, the questions our flesh is always asking are how, why, when, what? Right? We, I was with my grandkids today, and uh, we're walking, and, and my son says something to his son, Alistair, and he's like, why? Why? <laughs> that's the first thing. And that's just our flesh. Why? When? How? What? That's what our flesh does. Our flesh is always asking, and that's part of those plans that we make for ourselves. And it's only God's Spirit that provides answers. So again, our flesh, how we question life, we question God's Word and motives. Why would God do this? Why would God do that? We know that in the beginning, the serpent came to Eve with such a question. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Again, that, that mocking question, that question that's, 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 that's appealing to Eve's curiosity, her lust, things that she had already been kind of wondering about, and he plays to that with this question. And he provides for her a lie, not an answer, but a lie, an answer to her question. Um, so she questioned the truth of God's word. She became deceived. So she ate and gave to her husband. And in so doing, they became separated from their father. Yet again, he provided the answer, the promised offspring, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, questions are not always evil. God, Jesus, encourages us to ask, to seek, to knock. Asking sincere questions is an essential part of learning and being his disciple. I think we can agree on that. We saw the disciples often asking Jesus questions. We saw Mary when confronted with the angel Gabriel asking, how can this be? And she wasn't condemned for that. That was a sincere question. She was asking for more of God's revelation. But we also saw Zechariah at that time ask a question not in faith, and he was condemned for that. He was made mute until the time when his son John would be born. Questions cra crafted, and we saw also, let me, let me back up, questions that the Pharisees asked, right? They were always asking Jesus questions, right? Questioning him. And it was questions crafted to trap him, to try to prove some bogus point. You know, they would come up with some false premise and then try to trap Jesus by it. And always in his perfect wisdom would always defeat that. But that mocking, that scoffing, that fleshly question will always go unanswered. There was the time when Jesus stood before Herod 
And it says he didn't answer him one thing. Herod just mocked him and scoffed him, and he wouldn't answer him at all. But this verse, the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. When we speak, and and there's a lot of opportunities that, that that can play out in our life. The answer of the tongue is from the Lord. It can be those times when we speak from love and grace instead of hatred. Those, those, those little moments where someone, you know, where you catch yourself, you're about to say this and you don't, and God's Spirit allows you to show grace for someone that's maybe even attacking you or accusing you or whatever. We can see this also in Scripture when God's Spirit speaks directly through us, as in the prophets of old. Or even Peter and the apostles at Pentecost, when those tongues of flame rested on them and they spoke praises of God in every language. Jesus promised in Mark 10:19, when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. There's times he will answer for us. He will speak through us. Those times when we testify to others, when we confess him and present him as the answer. Jesus may or may not answer our questions because we may not be asking correctly. But the goal for us is to always rest in the fact that he truly, ultimately is the answer to whatever question we might have. This next verse in verse 2, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. That is so true, isn't it? <laughs> isn't it? Uh, while we can fool ourselves, we can fool ourselves regarding our motives. We can rationalize and make excuses, and, and, and we've seen this throughout history. The most heinous things can be justified and purified in our own eyes, but we can't fool him, and it's foolish to try. All that's required of us is sincerity to come to him and let the light of his word teach us and lead us in that way. Now, this establishment of our plans that we see in verse 3 and 9, those plans in dreams become a reality. They come into being when conceived of the Spirit and committed to God. So these plans that we have, if, we're, if they're in God, they only can come to life and come into being, be born, if you would, by God's Spirit when he breathes life into them like he did Adam. That word commit has to do with relinquishing control. And not just, not just of the work involved, but of the vision, purpose, and agenda attached to those plans. Otherwise, they'll be stillborn and fruitless. That word commit literally means to roll away, to roll away, to roll a stone away. Picture a well, rolling a stone away from the well so that you can get to the water. That same word, rolling a stone away from a tomb, that's the word commit. And that's an interesting way to think about that. To move the stone of our own will and disbelief that that figurative Lazarus can come out of that tomb. No longer trapped, but free and alive. Now, King David, Solomon's father, wrote in Psalm 37, 4, 
Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. Very similar verse. Commit your way to him. Trust him, and he will act. And when we study David's life, we see this truth is played out over and over again because God was always faithful to David as he did that. As he refused to take vengeance when vengeance was possible to him and he committed it to, to the Lord. Times when he um, could have usurped the throne, but he waited and he was patient and he was loyal, committing those things to the Lord and then God gave him the throne after all. He didn't have to take that into his hands, and I think that's the picture that we have here. I'm going to read the next few verses. Uh, Verses 4 through 7. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. That's a hard verse, that first verse, isn't it? The Lord has made everything, even the wicked, for the day of trouble. At first reading, it seems to indicate that God created wicked people purely for the purpose of destroying them which is contrary to the saving nature of God we see in the bulk of Scripture. So how do we reconcile that? How can we reconcile this verse, God made the wicked specifically to destroy them? It's not, that's a paraphrase. It's not exactly what it says, but the wicked for the day of trouble. How do we reconcile that with Jesus saying, I came not to judge the world, but to save the world? Wicked people are in the world. God came to save wicked people. Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save the lost. Solomon, and I love this because Solomon wrote Proverbs. So that verse we just wrote, read, written by Solomon. The same author, Solomon, also wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And there's a verse in Ecclesiastes, he says in uh, verse seven, chapter 7, verse 29, See, this alone... I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. They have sought out many schemes. So did God make man upright, or did he make them wicked for destruction? Now, I'm not a huge scholar. There are people that have debated that issue, free will, predestination, what all that means for millennia. For thousands of years, brilliant men. There's books that would fill this whole room that would try to answer that question. And it's a difficult enigma, but the reality, what we know is... Okay, so how do you know what you were made for? How do you know what you were made for? Paul in Romans talks about vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. And that God is being sovereign and he can do whatever he wants with that clay. But how do we know what we're made for? You know how you know? How do you know? Does anybody have a suggestion? She's got her hand up. (laughs) God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. How do you know? Chuck Smith said, if you want to know, you want to know if you were were destined for salvation, 
or destined for destruction, then call out to him. Call out to him right now where you're at this very moment, and then you'll know. Refuse him, and that's your choice. It's just that simple, guys. It's not, it can be very complicated, but as long as we have his air, his breath in our lungs and life, if we call on him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins no matter what. So if you're wondering about that, if there's a question about that, call out to him now. Because what we know for sure, what Scripture says is that everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. If you don't call out to him, if you don't repent of your sins, you will not be saved. And I think that's the simplicity of it. Verse 8, it says, Better... Well, where did I go on that? So I got caught up on the that issue. Atonement, atonement, where it says, um, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Atonement also brings peace with God and peace with our enemies. It says, when our ways please the Lord, he makes our enemies to be at peace with him. This is also interesting, because it seems this day in our culture If we're pleasing the Lord, people are angry at us. If we speak God's word, if we agree with God's word, our culture does not agree with God's word. It can make people debate with us, angry with us. It can cause us enemies in a lot of ways, I think. If you're honest in business, if you're um, not willing to go with the flow, that can get people upset with you. So what does this mean? I think, for me, what I've seen is that when a man's ways please the Lord... When we are like him, when we're loving and forgiving and just in what we do, we don't have enemies. I don't look at that guy that's angry at me as my enemy. Jesus tells us, pray for your enemies. Pray for your enemies. Do good to those who do evil to you. And so we disarm that whole battle by our walk with Christ to be like him who said, forgive them not for they know not what they do. That's the epitome of this. If we're walking the way Jesus walks, those people that are lost, that are attacking us, they don't become our enemies, they become the subjects of our prayer. Not because they agree with us or even like us. To lay down our arms and surrender to forgive as we've been forgiven. It's a great selection of verses. Um, Now we're going to get into this section of the king. The king. And this in Proverbs 16, 10 through 15. It says, An oracle is on the lips of a king. His mouth does not sin in judgment. A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. It is an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. Righteous lips are the delight of a king. And he loves him who speaks what is right. A king's wrath is a messenger of death. A wise man will appease it. In the light of a king's face there is life, and his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. First, let's realize that Solomon, again, wrote the book of Proverbs, and in some ways is speaking of the king in the third person. He's speaking of himself. He's speaking of himself as the king, as the idealized king. 
But obviously, um, when we see the kings of history, when we see the kings in this world today, when we look at rulers and emperors who are often and in some regimes usually corrupt, perverted individuals who don't fit this description at all. So this isn't a universal description. This is a description of how kings should be, but not how they always are, and certainly are not in our world today, and not throughout history. In the world, we do not get oracles. That word oracle that it starts out with is another word for a divine revelation, the word of God, the word of truth, an oracle. We don't, we don't get that from our leaders today. We get deception. We don't get justice. We get oppression and inequity. We don't get righteousness, rather corruption and compromise. So again, that word oracle can also be translated divination. Does that ring a bell? Divination. And that word can even start to be translated witchcraft, an oracle, like a, a way to divine the truth of God you know, by uh, throwing runes or these things that we would see people you know, cutting animals open and they would read the, the entrails of these animals. And that was done you know, not that long ago. We had people that um, were trying to understand God's will through those types of pagan means. Interestingly, this is the only positive use of this, whole, of this word in the whole Bible. Every other time it is used negatively, this divination, this oracle, this type of thing. You guys might remember there was a prophet in the Old Testament that confronted the people of Israel named Balaam. And he was a false prophet, but he had some sort of system where he could divine and speak to God, and it said that he used divination for that. And we know that he used that gift, ultimately, for a sinful type of prophet, and was a prophet in terms of money, and was judged by God for that. Solomon spoke God's wisdom and received divine revelation only in submitting to him, the king of kings, when that time when God came to him in a vision and humility, God, God said, humility on Solomon's part, but God said, ask me anything you want. This is what we talked about in the first week. And he asked for wisdom to judge God's people. That's why Solomon was able to speak the word of God because he came to him and asked for that gift. And God gave it to him. Jesus himself is the oracle the express image of the invisible God, the Word. Jesus once asked the disciples if they desired to leave. He said, do you guys want to leave? Because a lot of, of people, his teaching was difficult and, and people were leaving. And he said, do you also want to leave? And Peter responded, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? Jesus is the Word. In the world, the scales are weighted against us. In him, we have the assurance of perfect justice. In the world, kings often administer death. But in him, we have the promise of life and favor, like the spring rain. One of my favorite verses in, is Hosea 6.3, Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. He will come to us, oh, excuse me, his going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, 
as the spring rains that water the earth. So we see in these passages the king, our king, the king of kings, and all those rulers that would follow after him and be filled with God's spirit are that reliable, renewing, and faithful. And that spring rain speaks to that preparation for growth and fruitfulness in our life. So Proverbs 16, 17 through 19, a few verses. We're moving right along. (laughs) Time goes quick up here. The highway of the upright turns aside from evil. Whoever guards his way preserves his life. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That's a famous proverb. That's something we should all consider throughout every day. (laughs) For me, it's every minute of every day. That verse is such a key proverb. Pride comes before, goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. And chapter 17, verse 1, is, a, is, a, is also a complementary verse to this. It says, Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. And we've touched on, we've touched on this before, how pride trips us up but how humility lifts us up. And that, again, is contrary to the world's teaching. How contentment is not found in gorging ourselves or having the most, but that having contentment is true fullness and satisfaction of itself, of body, of mind, and of spirit. Next section, Proverbs 16, 20 through 24. Whoever gives thought to the word will discover good. And blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. The wise of heart is called discerning, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Good sense is a fountain of life to him who has it, but the instruction of fools is folly. The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious. <laughs> I'm having that would be judicious, and adds persuasiveness. I'm really struggling up here. These are hard words. Persuasiveness to his lips. Let's start that one over again. The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. I love this last verse, that, those gracious words, those words of grace, and how sweet it is when we hear words like that from those we love. How sweet it is to hear the words of the gospel, those words of grace that call us to belief and not condemnation, words that bring healing and not judgment. King David, again, wrote in Psalm 119, 103, speaking of God's word, Psalm 119 largely focuses on just the brilliance, the, 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 the glory of God's word. It's this longest chapter in the Bible, but he writes this little part, and he says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. But it's only those who have a taste for sin that find God's word bitter and unpalatable. You know, if we hate sin and love good like God does, his word is sweet. If we love sin and inequity, and uh, iniquity, I should say, and those things in our life, if we allow them in, God's word becomes bitter 
and unpalatable. So be careful of that. I need to be careful of that. If we're reading something in God's Word and it's not sweet, it means that we're in a place that we shouldn't be. For those of us who are His children, we should have a sweet tooth for His Word. Does anybody in here love sweets? I was recently back in the South. They have the best sweets of anywhere in the world, probably. I don't know. I haven't been a lot of places, but the South is great for sweets. But to have a sweet tooth for His Word and a desire to offer others graceful words as well. These verses, uh, Proverbs 16, 25 through 30, we're going to just skip over those, but they speak of that worthless man, the dishonest man, a man of violence and division. And we've talked about that before. I would encourage you to look at those verses and, and see what, that's, what that looks like, how that's characterized. Proverbs 17, we're going to get into this chapter. And... Um, there's so many great Proverbs in this chapter, and just for sake of time, we don't have the ability to go through every single one, but I picked out a few key ones that I really like. The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests the heart. Test hearts is the way this translation says. Test hearts. Speaking of how God turns up the heat to test us, to try us, to purify us, and to ultimately make us valuable to him and to others. Proverbs 17.10, A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. And that's such a graphic picture of this fool, right? Just getting pummeled, getting pummeled. I mean, a hundred blows. I've been hit two or three times and got knocked out and whatever, but a hundred? A hundred? You're not waking up from a hundred. And... Uh, getting beat beyond recognition. It's like I said, it's this graphic picture, yet he's still rebellious and stubbornly foolish because it can't penetrate his hard head. And it was contrasted to the one who is receptive and fertile for truth, who takes that rebuke deep into his heart and it bears fruit because he's receptive. And uh, that's what bears fruit in our life. This next one, let a man meet a she-bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. And that's just this great picture. There's a couple passages in Scripture that talk about a she-bear and just how um, terrifying that can be. I mean, this is a terrifying proposition, but it's preferable to meeting someone who's bent on folly, who will maul and tear your life apart to get what they want, to get what they want. That's what we've seen a lot in Proverbs is that that fool is often trying to get something from us, trying to oppress somebody else so they don't have to sacrifice themselves. Saying it's better to meet a bear than someone like that. Even a fool, this is 1728, who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Chuck Smith had this saying, and it was... Uh, Better to keep silent and allow others to suspect you a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. You guys have probably heard something similar to that. The, the, the irony in this verse is a fool can't shut up. So like if he could, you know, that, that's a short-lived glory that he probably gets. And I've, man, I mean, that's something I certainly struggle with. We've all probably been there. But such a great proverb. 
that even, even if we are foolish, if we can have just enough wisdom to be quiet for a minute, we might be considered wise. So those are some really key Proverbs, but again, as with all these studies, there, it's more of an overview. I really want you to, to go through these on your own, let some of them, because some of these are going to pop to you that aren't necessarily speaking to me in the same way, and just really meditate on that, chew on that, and let them really take, take, uh, take form in your, in your life and in your mind and in your heart. The next topic that I did see kind of popped out to me in chapter 17 is bribes. Bribes. And that's something we kind of haven't really touched on much either. Um, there's two verses that talk about it specifically in chapter 17. And the first is verse 8. And it says, A bribe is like a magic stone in the eyes of the one who gives it. Wherever he turns, he prospers. See a bribe being, being compared to this magic, this stone, this thing that can, like a talisman, if you will. The wicked, and uh, this is in verse 23, the wicked accepts a bribe in secret to pervert the ways of justice. So then we're getting a little context about what that bribe is for. So we see kind of what a bribe does and then kind of the intent of that, right? To gain an advantage, to pervert justice. Now earlier we talked about that godly king, that king inspired by and subject to the king of kings. And that it said, a just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in his bag are his work. Those are weights meant to, right? measure the scales to see if you have the appropriate quantity of whatever it is you're buying. And that's what that, those weights are, are supposed to symbolize. That God's weights are perfectly accurate. They're precise. It's an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. So we see that God is perfectly just, but we see these bribes. We see this person that's trying to pervert that will of God. We see that all the time. This is this is how the world works. Bribes and corruption are the order of the day in Washington, D.C., in Moscow, in Beijing, in Mexico City, and even in our own state and local government. And I'm not accusing anybody of anything, okay? So, but we know, so bribes are not always financial. I'm not saying anybody's on the take. What I'm saying is, we see those all the time who seem to magically get their way, who seem to magically get their permit approved to get tax breaks, to get stock tips or financial windfalls. That's been an issue in our Congress lately, right? Why was this person so poor when they got elected and now they're so incredibly fabulously rich? How did that happen? Because they only make this much a year. It doesn't add up, right? But again... We might see it in our own life. We might see a contractor who's tight with the building inspector. We might see a merchant who has prices for his special friends and other prices for other people. And all that stuff is, you know, it's all good, right? It's all good. It's all okay until they get caught. And then it's a big deal. And then we, and then we look at it like it's something amazing. Oh, I can't believe that was going on. Now, the word bribe here is also translated a donation, a present, or gift. Bribes, like we talked about, like I said, bribes are not necessarily always financial. 
It can be a favor here, a favor there. Something given to get what you didn't earn and don't deserve. And it always comes at the cost of someone else. Someone else getting less because of it. Someone else's loss for your gain. And that's something God hates. He hates that kind of favoritism. We talked about that in that earlier chapter where there were seven things God hates. And it all had to do with, with, with using someone else for your own advantage. And as much as God may hate that in the world, and we know that the world tends to operate that way, he hates it especially in the church. Jesus takes no bribes. The Lord cannot be lobbied or schmoozed. He is not a sellout. Rather, he is the one who paid the ultimate price for our salvation. He's not getting paid. He's paying. He's sacrificing. He's laying down his life. And that's the example he wants us to give. This is a great verse in Deuteronomy 10.17. It says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial, who is not partial and takes no bribe. And that was Moses speaking to the people of Israel before they went into the promised land, warning them about allowing that bribe mentality to infiltrate their culture, to maintain justice, to maintain the cause of the poor. And in the church, I mean, we can get into that bribe mentality in our own hearts. No ministry, no donation, no great deed can earn us God's favor. Because, like we looked at earlier, God tests the heart. I think for me and and for for our fellowship, when we give, let us give because we've received so much, not because we expect something in return. When we forgive, you know, forgiveness can be a bribe. I'll forgive you if you do this. I'll forgive you if you say this. Right? When we forgive, let us do so unconditionally because that's how we've been forgiven. When we serve, let us serve freely, not expecting anything in return, again, or some special favor. That special favor could even be special recognition, some special honor that you think you deserve. We do all that because he loved us first, because he's already given us everything. So I'll pray. Lord, thank you again for your word. We are humbled by it. And when I read it and when I teach it, it convicts me too. And we're all convicted. But Lord, as we come to you, you promise us that you don't condemn us, that you love to forgive, that you love to save, And I pray by your spirit that you would help us to walk in a way again that's pleasing to you. That we would be like you. That we wouldn't cause others to stumble because of our our own plans, our own desires, things that we want or don't want. But let us, again, conform our will to your will. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.